Welcome. You're listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Visit us on the web at vedanta.org. Vasudeva sutam devam kamsachanuramardanam devaki paramanandam krishnam vande jagat gurum. Salutations to Krishna, the destroyer of evil, the giver of joy, and the teacher of the world. Good morning. Thanks for coming out. Last Sunday was Janmashtami, which in English means Krishna's birthday. So I thought it'd be fun today to talk about Krishna in some way. And I thought, what a better way to talk about Krishna than to talk about the teachings. And even more important than the teachings is what it means to live the Bhagavad Gita. Because we can read the teachings, but it doesn't do us any bit of good if we don't try to live them and sort of incorporate these teachings in our life. Then it just becomes like useless stuff that we know and we don't do anything with. So I thought that'd be a fun topic. We'll see whether it is or not. So the real immediate question is, why would anyone want to live the Gita? I mean, it's really old. It was composed, according to Western scholars, somewhere between 200 and 400 BCE. According to Indian scholars, of course, it was gazillion years ago. So in any case, it's really, really old. So you're probably thinking it's not exactly our answer to contemporary problems. But there we would be wrong. Because it's actually just as relevant today as it was 3,000 years ago. It has a lot to tell us right now, right at this very moment in history. You know, because we're all dealing with human problems. We're all dealing with the same human issues. The same questions of life and death, heartache, loss, death, what it means to lose those we love. Those are as relevant now as they will be 3,000 years from now as they were 3,000 years ago. And the backdrop of the Gita makes it seem even weirder. It's First of all, it's in India, and that's exotic. Even more exotic is the fact that it took place in between two armies ready to kill each other. It's in the battlefield, the battlefield of the Kurukshetra. So you've got to envision this. One army's on this side. One army is on that side. Here are the Pandavas, the good side. The Kauravas, or the bad guys, on that side. And in the middle of all this, this little space between the two armies who are going to proceed to slaughter each other in the next 18 days, Krishna gives us philosophical treatise that becomes the Bhagavad Gita or the Song Gita of the Lord Bhagavan, Bhagavad Gita. So it seems like this war that they have creates a huge loss of life. It's like they say um, that only 18 people survived it. The, the number of people is, of course, they, in Hindu, Pond, uh, the Puranas, they say, well, a billion people. Well, maybe it was a million, maybe it was hundreds of thousands of people killed. In any case, it wiped out everybody. It was a total Pyrrhic victory. Yes, the good guys won. Arjuna and the Pandavas won. But at what a cost. And they were noble, noble souls on both sides. The, the, the bad guys, the Kauravas, had a truly evil guy as their leader, Duryodhana. 
But the others, there were many, many noble souls there, but they were all bound by alliances to a kingdom that had been in place for generations. They had sworn loyalty and allegiance because his predecessor had been wonderful people. So they sworn loyalty. So it ends up that they find the situation, and here it is in the battlefield. So the next good question is, okay, if this holy text is delivered before everybody slaughters itself, what's the point? You know, it doesn't seem like a great beginning. You know, it's like, are we going to go up from here or what's, what's the deal with that? Now, the reason it's worth really thinking deeply about the Gita is that IMO, in my humble opinion, IMO, it's the most sane, it's the most practical and applicable and actually the most beautiful spiritual text in the world. It's also short. It's only 700 verses. So it isn't like the Vedas where you could start your when you were born and, and read until the day you die and you still haven't finished the Vedas. And it's also really clear, really easy. It's everything. You know how it is? The Gita is like one of those things. You know, when you wake up sometime and you haven't had enough sleep or you've really overdone it the night before and you wake up and it's like, oh, man. And you can't think, everything's kind of confused, and your head's in a fog. And then you reach for that cup of coffee, and you drink it, your first sip, and it's like, ah, that's the answer, yes. The Gita is like that. It's like this bracing thing that puts every, it brings instant clarity. It puts everything into perspective. It's like, yes, this makes sense. This gives clarity. You know, Having that clear vision is so important right now because right now everything seems so strange. I mean, everything in the world seems particularly bizarre. It's like we not only have global warming, we have divisions in our country, we have this terrifying lack of civility, there's a huge shortage of moral authority everywhere, and everything seems to be going to hell in a handbasket. There's very little good news out there. But you know what? It was pretty much the same thing just before this war begins, before the Kurukshetra War. Everything was going to hell in a handbasket there. So it's the perpetual problem of hell in a handbasket. And how do we deal with our own, because we don't want an internal hell in a handbasket. The world is going to be the world, and it's going to keep doing that. So how do we keep our, our mind and our heart really clear so we don't go to hell in a handbasket? So we can face the world as it is and have that mental clarity and poise to be able to live in tranquility and peace and to get some genuine happiness out of our lives. That's what the Gita can give us if we're willing to learn from it. Now, the great thing about the Gita is that it gives us the big picture. It kind of gives us that bird's eye view. You know, when you go up high and you look down everything sort of falls into perspective because when we're down here, we're kind of doing our little thing and it all seems very important. And then you go up there and you look down and see how small everything is. And then from the perspective of the universe, the, the earth is just this tiny little speck of dust in the middle of this vastness. But we get hung up, but she said that and he said that and I don't know about my job when my boss did it. We get hung up in this little stuff and then we lose perspective. The Gita gives us the big picture. It gives us this perspective. So we can take the long view, the big picture. If we keep our eyes on the big picture, 
then the small stuff will come into place automatically. It will all, it will all find it, fall into place. If we lose sight of the big picture, we don't have a chance of anything falling into place. So we need to keep our eyes on the prize, give ourselves the, the ultimate perspective so we know who we are, what we are, what's our goal in life? What's the point of being here? What is the point of, of even going through this human birth? What's the deal? When we get that, all the small stuff will automatically fall into place. We won't have to worry about it. The first line of the Gita, every school child in India knows. And if you've ever seen that, that uh, did you, have you ever seen that show, the Mahabharata, that infinitely long series of three gazillion episodes that gives that? Every episode started with these words, Kurukshetre Dharmakshetre. And then the rest is Samat Veta Yayut Sabaha. On the field of Dharma in the holy land of Kurukshetra, armies are assembled eager for battle. Well, you know, that's our life. Our daily life is our field of Dharma, our field of battle. And every day we have to go out there and we have to engage in battle. And it's always with ourselves. Every day we have to make decisions. Every day we have to do, is this right? Is this wrong? We always often find ourselves that we make decisions just by rote, just an automatic thing, and then we regret it later. Am I doing it because it's the least of path resistance? Am I doing it because it's the right thing to do or because it's going to make it easy for me right now? Every day we're faced with what is good and what is pleasant. What is good for me? What is not only me personally, but what is good for me in relation to my family, in relation to society, in relation to humanity, in relation to the planet. Every day we have this battlefield we're going out to. It isn't just these warriors who are... Every day in our own minds, we're fighting. And we're usually fighting ourselves. So we have to make the mind tranquil and peaceful so that we can always figure out what is the best thing to do? What is the right thing to do? In the ultimate perspective, is the choice that I'm making the right thing? Is this going to bring me real joy? Or is it going to cause me pain at the end? Now, the first chapter is called, intriguingly, Vishada Yoga, the yoga of despondency. Oh boy, this is getting sounding better and better. Great, yoga of depression, right? Yeah, this is going to be a great morning, isn't it? <laughs> it's, but it actually really is a great beginning because it's so realistically, it's like someone's throwing water in your face, cold water in the morning, what? Yoga of despondency? But that's, if we think everything here is hunky-dory, we don't have a chance at spiritual life. If we're all satisfied with the way we are, with the way our life is, then fine. Don't bother with a spiritual life. You'll come back next life, life after. We have to have a sense of discontent. If we're satisfied by eating, drinking, and making merry, if we're satisfied with like, I'm just going to get out what little pleasure I can, no matter no way, way every way I can until the day I die, and be comfortable, hell with everybody else, then fine, we don't need a spiritual life. But if we're not happy with the way things are, if we're not really pleased with ourselves, if we want to have more peace and tranquility in our lives, 
if we want to be able to approach the world in a happier, saner way, then we got to make adjustments. Then we have to really look at what we want in our life. If we want to make a change, everyone here, if your fact that you're here means you've had a yoga of despondency, the fact that you're here means, I mean, you can be doing anything else on a beautiful morning like this. You could be at the beach. You could be at a mall. You could be watching television. You could be playing music. You could be hanging with friends. You could be sleeping. But the fact that you're here shows that you're looking for something more in life. You're not satisfied with a surface life, or else you'd be doing something way more fun. The fact that you're here means good morning. We want to look at life a little more deeply. And that's what the Bhagavad Gita gives us. How do we look at life a little more deeply so we can get joy that doesn't go away? So we can have permanent peace and have a tranquility that isn't shaken by every time someone says something mean to us. Now, Arjuna's grief, Arjuna's grief, it, it's a real, it, it's, it's a real problem. He's a warrior. That's his dharma. That's his training. He has to be a warrior. He is considered the greatest warrior in the world. He is the greatest archer in the world. He's been trained since childhood for generations untold to be a warrior. So when he goes out there and Krishna brings him before the opposing army, he's going out there and Krishna's taking him in the chariot and he goes out there, going to look at the other, it's like, ha ha, I'm going to look at the other army. And he sees people he loves. He's looking at his uncles. He's looking at cousins. He's looking at his own spiritual teachers that are on the other side. It's not their fault. The leader of that other group is truly evil, but they're all bound by alliances. They've sworn allegiance and loyalty to that throne. So they're, he's looking at people he loves and respects, and he's overwhelmed by grief because he doesn't really, he can't, he, I would rather be killed myself, he says, than to kill these people I respect and love so much. How can I kill Drona, the, the man who taught me archery? How can I kill Bhishma, my grandfather? How can I, he's known me, he's raised me since I was a child. How can I kill him? It's better for me to, to live as a beggar than to kill these revered ones. It's better for me to just be killed by them. So he, he sees this and he's overwhelmed with grief. So it isn't like they didn't try to have peace. Krishna and uh, Arjun, they really tried to go to the other side and they tried to sue for peace. It isn't like they're just going for battle because they're, they, have, they thought it'd be great to kill each other. The, the Pandavas really worked hard and sent Krishna over as ambassador. Please, we don't want this, we don't want that. Just give us a little village so that we can live in peace, our, that our entire clan can go and live in peace. We will not disturb you. And Duryodhana said, we will not give you land the size that will fit on the head of a pin. Duryodhana basically wanted to wipe everybody out, and he wanted to take the Pandava's wife, Draupadi, and, his, and make all the women slaves. So they realized they cannot not fight, because otherwise their side will get slaughtered, and it's going to be a, a, a terrible thing. But Arjuna is saying, what kind of victory is it if I end up killing those I love? I mean, you see, he's got a real problem here. He really does have a problem. And that, that frankly, would make anybody depressed. You know, we think we have problems. He's got problems. But 
in a sense, we can all relate because we've all had crises in our lives. We've all had to face situations where it looks like there's no good answer. This isn't a good situation. That isn't a good situation. I don't see any way out of this. I really don't know what to do. And in a sense, this is, this is a good thing. Because you know what? If any of us have any sense, if we look more deeply, we can see that if we go along life as it is now, it's an intractable situation. It doesn't have a good end. If we go with being satisfied with eating and drinking and making merry, life is short. Life is seriously short. No matter how long we live, life is really terribly short. No matter how hard, no matter how much Botox, no matter how much dye we use, no matter how many cosmetic surgeries we have, you know, your neck's still going to look funny, and you're just, no matter what, our life is in comparison to that stretch of time, we're here like that, and it's gone. Even more painful, we lose those we love. We lose everything we work for. We lose, we lose over time our money. We lose our importance. We lose our status. We lose our honor. No one cares after a while, you know. After you retire, you think they're going to think, oh, wasn't that a one? No one cares. It all goes. Even the people that we love are taken from us. Some are relations that we work so hard on. Uh, sometimes they just fade away from disuse or disinterest. Sometimes they sour. And no matter what, even the best relationship, somebody dies. One person, the other is going to die. So all these things in our life are impermanent. Our health is impermanent. Our body is impermanent. Our mind is impermanent. Our relationships are impermanent. All our possessions that we are so proud of, look what I got, it's, it's impermanent. It all gets destroyed in one mudslide. It all goes like that. And unless we change our attitude about it and we start working on a deep spiritual life, then things aren't looking that great for us either. We'll only be in that same position with Arjuna with going, whoa, this is not a good situation. We want to really work on a spiritual life before time runs out, before we don't have time to even work on a spiritual life, before the clock ticks off. It's like, oh, time for another incarnation. Oh, but I want... I, I didn't get around to, yeah, that's how it goes. Never know when Mr. Death going to come. Ever see that Twilight Zone with Robert Redford? If you haven't, yeah, with Mr. Death. <laughs> it's a good one, always. <laughs> yeah, it's, we never know when Mr. Death is going to come. And that's good. When I was really sick once with, with Hong Kong flu, I, I told my spiritual teacher, I was a kid, I was 15 or 16 at the time, I told Swami Prabhavan, and I said, I always thought that I wasn't afraid of death. I always thought, oh, I'm a devotee, I will go to the Lord, blah, 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 blah. I'm not afraid to die. Until I got really sick with a Hong Kong flu and ended up in the hospital, and I couldn't come too. And then I really thought I was going to die, and I was terrified. And I told my guru, Swami Prabhavan, under that. And I said, I was so ashamed of myself. I was really scared. And he said, ah, yes, always. And I said, but after that, I could really meditate well. And he said, yes. He said, always meditate with a sword of Yama, the king of death, over your head. 
we realize that's why like some of these Christian monks always had a skull on it. It seems depressing, but it's like, no, life is short. We don't know when it's going. So we have to develop a spiritual life before our opportunity is gone. This human birth is a great opportunity. We should not waste it. Dalai Lama's always, always emphasizing that. Do not waste precious human butt. This human birth is very precious. We have to take advantage of it. It may, may not be so lucky next time around. Or we may not be in a place where it's so easy to have a spiritual life. We may be in a situation where it's really difficult to even engage in it. So we're in a place now where we can. So we should take advantage of it and not let the time pass thinking, soon, you know, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. Because we want to have permanent joy. We want to have the ability to be able to be quiet enough that we can turn into ourselves and find peace and joy within our own hearts. And that is available to us. It is entirely possible. It's doable. And we all know people who, who can do it. No reason why we can't. It's our, it is our birthright as human beings. No reason to miss this chance. We need to work on it. So in the second chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna lays out the whole of Vedanta philosophy before Arjuna. You know, it's a great chapter. It has everything that occurs throughout the rest of the 18 chapters. It sounds like it's long, but it's only 700 verses. Everything that occurs in those 18 chapters comes sort of encapsulated in the second chapter. And it's called the yoga of knowledge. He not only teaches Arjuna and us about how to deal with his duty how to deal with the thing he has to do, but also how to be free. And that's what we all need to know. How do we do our dharma? And how can we be free? And it's all there in the Gita. The chapter is entitled Yoga of Knowledge. And that's so important because knowledge is the greatest thing because, duh, it removes our ignorance. Ignorance is the source of all of our misery. Because of our ignorance, we forget who we really are. Because of our ignorance, we think we're mortal. Because of our ignorance, we think we are subject to birth and death. Because of our ignorance, we think that we are subject to the whims of nature and the whims of each other, the whims of our boss, the whims of our spouses. We forget that we're infinite and free. We forget that we are purity itself because of our ignorance. So knowledge is the greatest thing, but unapplied knowledge, knowledge that we don't put into practice is totally useless. It's like reading a recipe book and then putting it down saying, I don't know how to make, how to make that roux. We need to be able to apply it. So again, the second chapter is great because it distills all of the Gita. And it said, it has been said, that if Arjuna was a better student, the Gita would have ended at the end of the second chapter. But thank God he's kind of, he's not the world's best pupil, neither are we. None of us are that brilliant or else we wouldn't be here. Right? We'd all be sitting and meditating in samadhi. Arjuna asked the questions for the rest of us. And because of his questioning, we're given the wisdom that has elevated the world for the past three, three or 4,000 years. That's the great thing. And some of the most memorable and beautiful teachings, that's the thing about the Gita, it's just so beautiful, are given throughout the whole Gita. 
So in the beginning, the second chapter, again, Arjun is just overwhelmed with sorrow. You've got to envision this, okay? The two armies there, there are, there's Krishna who's driving him in the chariot, and there's Arjuna, the greatest warrior of the world, and he's dropped his bow. He's letting it lie on the ground. His head is bent down in despair, and he's crying. It's like you can see both armies are going, what? This is the world's greatest warrior. I, you know, it doesn't look good. And then Krishna says exactly what you wouldn't think any spiritual person would say, let alone an incarnation of God. He says, what has gotten into you? He says, basically, it is unworthy of you, this cowardice. Stand, shake off your cowardice, get up and fight. It's like, oh, I thought we were supposed to be all spiritual and everything, and, and I thought we weren't supposed, supposed to fight. I thought we were supposed to be nonviolent. I thought that was spiritual. Mm -mm, no. Krishna goes on. He doesn't leave it there. He said, Don't be a eunuch. I mean, that's really hitting below the belt, literally. He said, get rid of this cowardice. It doesn't befit you as a warrior. Stand up and fight. It's like you're not expecting a spiritual person to say that, right? Because we often think that being spiritual means being passive. It means, oh, I'm going to just surrender. It's like baloney. Only the greatest souls can really surrender. The rest of us, if we don't react externally, it's because we're either a coward or we're indifferent or we're just indecisive. But most of all, we just don't want to, we don't want to make any waves. So we say to ourselves, oh, I'm just going to surrender. It's like, but in our heart, we're going, Oh, I hope that person gets into a car accident. I hope that person slips on a banana peel. That person said that to me. I really, I should have said that, but no, I'm going to surrender. Ooh. No, that's not being spiritual. It's being a coward. It's not addressing the issue. Krishna says, no, stand up and fight. And he's telling all of us, stand up and fight. All of us need to stand up and fight over the appropriate things. You know, Swami Turiyananda, this great monastic disciple of Sri Ramakrishna, Ramakrishna said that he was the embodiment of the Gita, the embodiment of the renunciation, the purity of the Gita. And he was in the United States for, for, some, for a few years. And he had up in Northern California an incredible ashrama called Shanti Ashrama, which is owned by the Vedanta Society of Northern California. It's very, very remote. And it's, um, it's, it was this total wilderness, and they all lived in a very strict ashrama life. And he had a disciple, a Western, an American woman by the name of Ujwala, who actually passed her last days at our center in Hollywood. And as he, he was, I guess Ujwala just happened to be walking by, and he, he told, he said to Ujwala, Turinata did, are you, um, are you deep or shallow? Do you live and die in words? Or do you live and die in principles? She's like, not what you... She said, even before I could think of something to say to him, he continued by saying, in matters of opinion, go with the current. 
in matters of principle, stand firm as a rock. So when we talk about stand up and fight, we're not talking about stand up and fight over political opinions. That's those come and go. We're not talking about political opinions. We're not talking cultural opinions. We're not talking about like health opinions. We're not talking blue, red, green, or any of that nonsense. Matters of opinion that change as the day goes on. It's like chocolate's good for you. Chocolate's bad for you. Coffee's good for you. Coffee's bad for you. It goes like that. It doesn't matter in the big picture. What matters is matters of principle, truthfulness, integrity, non-stealing. The other ones of compassion, of understanding, of generosity. Are we willing to stand for integrity? Those are the things we fight for. Are we willing to make a stand for truthfulness, not over opinion? I think this and you think that. Who cares? That's ridiculous. On questions of moral authority, those we have to stand like a rock. On that, we have to be absolutely unshakable. So Arjun asks such a great question. How can I kill the people that I love and respect? And Arjuna says that pity has overtaken his warrior nature. And he said, I'm confused. I don't know what to do. And then he says one of the most important teachings of the Bhagavad Gita, which is, Shishaste ham shadimam twam prapanam. I am your disciple. Teach me. I surrender to you. I take refuge in you. You know, if we really want to learn spiritual life, we have to have humility. We have to have a spiritual teacher. We can't learn it on our own. Even a thief needs a teacher. A prostitute needs a teacher. A physicist needs a teacher. Why do we think that we can do spiritual life without a teacher? It's not possible. Our ego deceives us and deludes us a 10,000 times at every turn. We need someone who can know who is an experienced spiritual teacher, who knows, who can read what we need as spiritual aspirants and can give us the advice and help we need. That doesn't mean you go for anybody who declares himself a guru. I asked once my teacher, Swami, how can you tell the real from the fake? You see this guru and that guru and this self-proclaimed incarnation. How do you tell the real from the fake? And he said, look at their lives. They should lead absolutely pure lives and they should never ask for money. He also said that a spiritual teacher should want their disciples to succeed more than he himself has. He wants his spiritual students to, out, to outdo him in their spiritual wisdom and knowledge. That's a true spiritual teacher. So you don't go for the ones who look good. You know, the ones with the, the perfect walk, the perfect look, the perfect ohm. You do the one, you wait a while, you check them out. You don't jump into it. And then you look at their lives. And then you ask him or her to teach you and say, I don't know what's the best thing from you. I am your student. Please teach me. I, I surrender to you. You don't surrender your common good sense. But you say, you put your ego on the ground and say, I don't know really 
anything about spiritual life. You please teach me. And you, in the Gita, Krishna doesn't start talking anything about spirituality until Arjuna says that. When Arjuna says that, then we get the highest teachings of the Bhagavad Gita, but not until then. We won't get real spiritual teachings until we have the humility to know that we really don't know that we need guidance, which means, thank you, Swami Sarvadevananda, for this wonderful quote, don't edit. He said, when your teacher gives you spiritual instructions, actually do what he tells you to do. That means do what he, tell, he or she tells you to do. Don't think, oh, you know, I just heard this in lecture. That sounds really good. I should do that too. No. It doesn't mean maybe I should cut that out, but I can do that too. No, don't edit. If we do exactly what he or she has told us to do, we can attain the highest. We can reach the highest goal of life, but we can't go mucking about on our own. Or if we do decide to muck about, we have to say, consult, and then he'll say, all right, you can do this too, but don't forget to do this because they can see when we're going off. We're locked in our ego. We can't see when we're being diverted from the path. They can. They can. That's why it's so important to have a spiritual teacher, a real spiritual teacher, not one with the vogue look about them. So it sounds kind of cold when Arjun is there, you know, like eyes filled with tears. Krishna just says to him with a smile on his face, you're mourning for those who should not be mourned for. The wise mourn neither for the living or for the dead. Sounds cold, right? And then he goes on to say, by me, these people have been killed already. In other words, his Krishna is speaking as the divine, as God himself. It's like their karma has been cut. They, they, they are going to die in this battle. But it's actually, it sounds cold, but it's actually the most compassionate thing in the world because only then do we really get the highest teachings, which is Krishna says, look, he says, just as the dweller within this body, that is the soul, our spirit, just as the body goes through childhood, youth, and old age, he said, the Atman passes through this, but at death, the Atman just goes into another body. He said, wise people are not deluded by this. They know it's just the body. So we have to ask ourselves, like Arjuna saying, well, when someone dies, who or what is, who or what is dying? It's just this. The snake is shedding the skin. That's all. He said, Krishna says, know the self, know the Atman, unborn, undying, never ceasing, never beginning, birthless, deathless, unchanging forever. How can it die the death of the body? He said, bodies are said to die, but that which possesses the body, the spirit, is eternal. And then he goes on to say, worn out garments are shed by the body. Worn out bodies are shed by the dweller within the body. New bodies are donned like garments. In other words, when we lose a body, we take on another one. He said, the wise are not deceived by this. He said, know it to be birthless. Know it to be deathless. Know it to be eternal. He said, again, he said, he's trying to, to give him some perspective. He said, look, before birth, beings are, are, are unmanifest. 
They're only manifest in this little space between birth and death. And they're unmanifest again. Why should you grieve about that? Why, why? And then he says, the divine within us is indestructible. That spirit within us is absolutely, completely eternal, indestructible. No power has the ability to destroy what is indestructible. He said, knowing this, go out and fight. No one kills and no one is killed. It's just this. So how can we possibly think that this is spiritual, right? Thou shalt not kill. Well, this is spiritual because the spiritual thing for a warrior is to be a warrior. The spiritual thing for a mother is to be a mother. The spiritual thing for a contractor is to be a contractor. The spiritual thing for a student is to be a student. The spiritual thing for a computer analyst is to be a computer analyst. The spiritual thing for a nun is to be a nun, etc., etc. By doing our dharma, that is how to be spiritual. This is called karma yoga. Doing our duty with this complete evenness of mind. Because... You know, we need these bracing words to kind of bring us back to like what is real and what is unreal. Karma yoga means doing our work without desiring the effect of the actions. We, Krishna is telling Arjuna to go out because it's a righteous war. He's engaging in a war that is righteous. It's not like this petty little stuff that we have now. It's a real choice between good and evil. And it's like Hitler. You can't let Hitler go on without it. But we also have our own battles and we also need to engage in karma yoga, which means making all of our action part of our spiritual life, making our action yoga. If we don't, we don't have to do it, but if we don't make it part of our spiritual life, we just end up being miserable because we end up putting our ego out there and then people trounce on it and we complain about it. It hurts. So it's like a dog that puts its tail under the rocking chair and blames you for using the rocking chair, don't put your tail there. So unless we learn to make our actions part of our spiritual life through karma yoga, we're going to suffer because our ego is going to be completely out there at all times. One of the most memorable lines from the Bhagavad Gita that every school child learns is karma nyev adhikaras te mafleshu kadachana karma falahi turbur mate sangos vakarmani. To work alone, you have the right, but not to the fruits thereof. You can't let the desire for the results of your work be your motive for working and never be lazy. Don't think that being lazy is being spiritual. It's just being lazy. Basically, we have to give up all concern for the results of our action. And absolutely, our concern would just be on doing whatever we're doing the best way possible in the most dedicated, concentrated, and attentive way possible. I mean, people make this big thing about mindfulness. I'm being mindful. It's like, didn't you ever read the Bhagavad Gita? This is the whole thing with karma yoga. Karma yoga means having our full concentration on whatever we're doing, full mind and heart right there. The end never justifies the means. That is un-yoga. Never, never okay. It's like we do everything 
in our within our purview, what we're supposed to be doing. We do it as perfectly, as beautifully as we can. And then we don't even care about the result that we offer up. Our yoga is doing that job as best we can. Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, yoga karmasu kaushalam. Yoga is skill and action. Yoga isn't the pretzel. Yoga is controlling the mind. Yoga is skill in action. So rather than making our actions part of our thing that binds us to this world, part of our delusion, part of the things that you know rancor our heart, we need to make it part of our spiritual life. Because if we're always waiting for the results, I want to do this because I want this result. I'm going to do this job really great so that my boss will give me a thing so I'll do this and so I can do that. If we're always looking in the rear view mirror like that, how is this being seen? Did she notice me? Did he notice? Why didn't that notice that? Did he not see? I worked all so hard on that. If we are looking in the rear view mirror, we're not looking ahead. We're not driving. We have to really be clear about just doing it really well and then let it fall where it may. We have to make all our actions an offering to the divine, however we may envision that divine. And again, the Gita emphasizes again and again the value, the importance of this even-mindedness. He tells Arjuna, go out there with a samadvam, this evenness of mind. So he do, when he goes out there to fight, there's no hatred, there's no anger, there's no resentment. There is no sense of um, vengeance. Complete evenness of mind. And then a Christian tells us what should be obvious, but we always forget, is that work that is done with this evenness of mind is so much superior than the work that is done with the results of our action in mind. Because if we're so we have so much static electricity going about what is she going to think? What is he going to think? Oh my God, this is turning out this way. What will people think? It's not going to turn out that well. But if we do it just as the way it should be, with skill and action, it will inevitably turn out as it should turn out. And then we are detached from it. We offer it up, let the chips fall where, where they may. But this evenness of mind is emphasized again and again, this inner poise, this inner tranquility this place in our own hearts where we can be still and we can do all our work out there, but inside we feel this calm. We don't get frustrated. We don't get flustered. We don't get knocked off our game because we have the sense of being very still in the inside while we do our work on the outside. That gives us incredible peace of mind. And then we're able to work. We're able to think we're able to react to the others in a very sane and happy way. Then with that sort of skill, we can really meditate too. That everything in the Bhagavad Gita is about harmony. The Bhagavad Gita teaches harmony because all the four yogas are taught. They talk about harmony within ourselves. That yoga is not for the one who eats too much or eats too little. It's not for the one who, who sleeps too much or doesn't sleep enough. In other words, we have to have this sort of even-mindedness. We don't do anything excessively. Harmony also with all the four yogas, that the Gita talks about every single one of these different aspects of our own personality. Our, our love should be directed in, of bhakti yoga, 
that when we, Krishna says in the Gita, give me your whole heart. It doesn't mean just Krishna, Krishna. It means to the Lord, to however we envision this, this divine, this ultimate reality. Give me your whole heart, love and adore me, worship me always, and you shall find me. This is my promise who love you dearly. Now we often get a kind of a trip going. It's like, oh, you know, we feel sort of diffident about God, the, this ultimate reality. It's like, oh, but you know, he or she or what remembers, you know, I did this wrong. They don't care. They don't care. Anyone who's had an experience of this ultimate reality, all the great spiritual teachers, all the great saints say that above all else, it's this incredible amount of unquestioning love that is poured out that the ones who are the greatest spiritual teachers are the one who overwhelm us with this unquestioning love and Krishna who love you dearly. They, they could care less about our little mistakes. We think God judges us like we judge others. No, this infinite love pouring over us again and again, we take one step towards God. God takes a thousand steps towards us. And again, with the yoga of knowledge, jnana yoga. So all these, and the yoga of work, Raj, and then uh, doing our action, and then Raj yoga, the yoga of meditation, using all parts of our personality to make this great attempt to realize who we really are so that we can have this peace and this knowledge of our own inner divinity, the knowledge of that joy within our own hearts. So we can have that for ourselves. So we're not always looking outside for something to make us happy. All happiness is within ourselves. And when we can get these four yogas, and we really use, utilize all parts of our personality to harness the strength within us, which we all have, and discover the, that true divinity within ourselves, we don't need to go outside to be happy. We're satisfied entirely. When through the practice of yoga, the mind ceases its restless movements and becomes still, one realizes the Atman. It satisfies him entirely. Doesn't that sound fantastic? To be able to have, if we're satisfied entirely, we don't look, need to go anywhere else. We're happy in ourselves. We have that tremendous tranquility and peace knowing that nothing out there is going to make us any happier than we are now. And then there's the topic of lunch. If any of you have been to any Vedanta things, if you've ever had a meal with us, if you've been to any Vedanta society where they serve food, if you've been to any of our public celebrations or pujas, you hear the same thing. Actually, any good Hindu household or any Hindu monastery, you'll hear these lines from Bhagavad Gita, chapter 4, verse 24. Om Haryom Brahma Havir Brahma Agno Brahmanahutam Brahmayevatena Gantavyam Brahma Karma Samadinam. Which means everything is pervaded by Brahman. The, the references to Hutam, the, where he's talking about the old Vedic worship, where we offering of the ghee, the offering into everything is divinized. So in our current setting, we don't do yagyas, we don't offer, we're not offering ghee into this fire. But we are, this, the message is, everything is pervaded by Brahman. 
we are pervaded by Brahman. Our actions, the acts that we are doing are pervaded by Brahman. The one who is, who is doing the action is pervaded by Brahman. The act of eating is pervaded by Brahman. The food is pervaded by Brahman. When one has this realization through karma yoga of action, Brahma karma samadhina, Brahman karma samadhi, one attains that highest realization through this very karma, through this work, through this action. So everything is pervaded by Brahman. Everything is suffused with Brahman. Our actions, our own being, the food itself, everything. And we can take this realization outside everywhere. Everything that we see is pervaded by Brahman. Every being that we see is pervaded by Brahman. If we can remember that, our life will have so much more joy. So when you have lunch today, just try to remember that it is Brahman, we are Brahman, the act of eating is Brahman. And then it kind of changes that whole perspective. Thank you. Om Purnamada Purnamidam Purnat Purnam Udachate Purnasya Purnamataya Purnameva Vashishate Om Shanti 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 Om Filled with Brahman are the things we see. Filled with Brahman are the things we see not. From out of Brahman flows all that is. From out of Brahman flows all. Yet is Brahman still the same. Om peace, peace, peace be unto us all. You've been listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Thanks for listening.